welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is episode five. I'm your host, J.M. Prater, and I am joined by our co-host, Patrick Green. And we are here to discuss uh, several things today. Uh, two major things. One of them is the, the piece done by Wired Magazine, which is fairly in-depth. It's the most in-depth piece I've seen, or I've read, I should say, of uh, surrounding Blade Runner 2049, which, re- which releases in less than two weeks which is a big deal. And the next larger thing will be the interview that Denis Villeneuve gave an outlet in Russia, in Moscow. And uh, he talked about things that we have not heard um, him talk about yet, um, which I thought was really great. And that interview is up on our page if you guys want to go and uh, check it out. There are some translation pauses. You can hear him respond, but you don't really know what the questions are. Um, But you can kind of gather what the questions are. And uh, so, yeah, let's jump right into it and let's talk about the Wired piece. Yeah, man. So this was huge. This thing came out and I, I, I couldn't believe we got this incredible wealth of information about this film that still feels like it's been so hermetically sealed, like the plot points and the details. We still know so little about it. Um, and to be fair, the author of the piece still knows very little about it as well. But within that very narrow framework of what we're allowed to know, there's this incredible wealth of information. So I really recommend everybody uh, head over to Wired Magazine. If you haven't already, to, to check out the full article, you can go to Wired.com or you can pick it up on newsstands. It's just amazing. So I'm going to give you guys an overview of it. We're going to go through some of what he talks about. Uh, I will be very careful not to spoil anything. I don't think there's really much in the way of spoilers in here, but it's worth, you know, none of us want this to be ruined. So I've, I've been pretty careful about getting rid of anything that might be perceived as that. But anyway, so the, the piece is by Brian Raftery, and it has amazing photography by Dan Winters. So uh, thanks to both of them for getting this amazing piece out and check it out. So basically, he starts with a little bit of an overview of the original film, how it came to be, what the release history was, which we know was was pretty troubled, actually. Um and then uh, he talks about being on set. He was given exclusive access to the set, and he gets to um, witness a scene being filmed, which I'm not going to talk about because there could be spoilers in there for you guys. Um, but anyway, then he goes on and he summarizes what we know uh, about the plot of this new film, which uh, these are things that we've talked about, but it's nice to have them all in one place. So I'll go ahead and just um, read some of that for you guys. So 30 years after we leave Deckard, bruised and battered in L.A. in 2019, he's disappeared. And an LAPD officer named Officer K, played by Ryan Gosling, is on the hunt for him. And Officer K might or might not be acting at the behest of his boss, who we know is played by Robin Wright, who's amazing also. Um, and uh, actually, the, the people the, the people behind the film have not confirmed whether or not um, she's actually involved with this, this hunt. So, so that's a little bit unsure. So he might be acting independently. We don't know. Anyway, there's a new, a new breed of replicants who we talked about on the last uh, couple of episodes. Built by a mysterious inventor named Neander Wallace, uh, who has a devoted employee named Love, uh, played by Sylvia Hex. And I might be mispronouncing her name. If I am, I apologize. Um, and that's basically it. That's basically all we know about this film, which I think is awesome. Like, mm-hmm. that is that is intriguing. We get enough to be excited about, but that's pretty much it. So uh, we'll try to keep it, keep it pretty minimal um, in terms of plot points. Um, there's a lot about how Villeneuve uh, views the creation of this film. He, he's been very specific about not having the action sequences be noisy or audacious or, in his own words, to marvel. Um, and actually, Denny Villeneuve said, I want to bring them down, meaning the action sequences, as close as possible to the original Blade Runner. More simple, more brutal. So that's a, a very good sign as well. Anyway, then they talk a little bit about the uh, screenplay and how it came to be, which I won't get too deeply into. Um, 
And, uh, and they make a very good point about why I think the original film feels so evergreen, why it feels so timeless, like why you and I are talking about it today, which I think we probably would be even if there weren't a new movie coming out. This is still something that's very much on our minds. Um, and the writer of the piece, Brian Raftery, says, because of the film's diffuse storytelling and blurry genre confines, Blade Runner can feel like a different movie every time you watch it, a detective story, an action flick, a romance or maybe all of them at once. And I, and I think that's a really astute point. And I think that we talked about this in our first episode when we talked about why we love Blade Runner so much, is that it really, you can watch it over and over again, you can get a very different film out of that experience. And I, I think that's probably part of why it took so long to remake the movie too, because it's 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 not something you can just pin down, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not just a science fiction picture. It's, 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 it's a much more complicated stew than that. Um, to that, so anyway, to that yeah. uh, point, I just want to add that when Ridley Scott jumped on to Blade Runner in when they picked up his brother had just passed away. Um, it was a fluke. His brother died very young and Ridley Scott said that he, it was a dark time in his life. And so he felt like it was right for him to take on some dark material. And um, that was kind of his answer to his way of moving through his brother's death. Mm. Um, and if you think about it, the, the things that we have discussed, what, you know, what does living mean? What does it, what does it mean to be human? Um, how are we alone in this world? What does love mean? Um, are we just going through the motions or are we living? Um, those are all things Ridley Scott was dealing with, you know, right, as a 42 yeah. year old man. Um, and it was pretty heavy stuff and it really reflects itself in Blade Runner. And, uh, yeah. I think it, it's, I can imagine it is difficult to make a sequel because just, you have to continue those themes in some ways that are fresh, um, but that honor the original. Um, but they also are personal to the director because if if the director isn't feeling it personally, you're not going to see it. Right. So right. Just a right. Little right. Right. No, that's that's a great point. Uh, so then it goes through some of the pre-production, which uh, a lot of this I had no idea about. It talks a lot about some of the details behind it. So I'll go through that briefly. So uh, on a night in early 2011, uh, right before Scott started filming Prometheus. Um, which you can hear quite a bit about on our other podcast, Perfect Organism. Uh, he had a three-hour dinner in London with two producers. One of them was Broderick Johnson, and one of them was Andrew Kosov. Um, and their company uh, was Alcon Entertainment. They had a bunch of hits recently. And they had also been spending a year quietly acquiring the rights to produce a new Blade Runner movie. And uh, anybody who's listened to our first two episodes will know exactly what we're talking about. This was a uh, These rights were kind of bouncing around for quite a long time. Um so uh, shortly after that, Hampton Fancher, who we know uh, was an actor turned screenwriter who uh, was instrumental in creating the screenplay and the story for the first film, he was sitting in his Brooklyn apartment and he got a call and the call just said, please hold for Ridley Scott. Um, Scott was approaching him about working on a new story for Blade Runner. And it turned out that Fancher had actually already been working on a short story. And the protagonist of that short story would become 2049's uh, agent or Officer K, who we you know was played by Ryan Gosling. So uh, this, the few pages that existed of this short story turned into a treatment, which turned into a sh short script, um, and then went to a screenwriter named Michael Green, who, if you also listen to our other show, you will know very well was behind Alien Covenant, as well as some other adaptations in the last year. He's had a huge year, actually. He had like four really big movies. He had American Gods. He had Logan, which... What an amazing movie. Alien Covenant and also Murder on the Orient Express. So he's had an incredible year. Uh, and he was brought onto this project. And uh, early on in this process, Scott and Fancher were already thinking about having Ryan Gosling playing Agent K. 
And also, they were keeping Harrison Ford looped into the process. So even before he signed off on his involvement, after seeing the script, which we've talked about, Ford was already seeing things coming along. He was already in this you know, stew of what was going on. Uh, and of course, Ford says the script is what convinced him, convinced him to ultimately sign on. So Michael Green has a good quote about this. He says, everybody going into this was apprehensive. The prospect of diving back into many people's favorite film, including my own, we all wanted to make sure we were getting it right. You're not playing with fire, and you're not playing with matches. You're playing with M80s in the backyard, and you've already lost your thumb. And I thought, I mean, that is like, that is, end quote. I thought that is just exactly, absolutely, <laughs> exactly what we've been talking so much about. This thing is so important to so many people for so many complex reasons that um, it is, it is, you can't mess it up. So then in 2014, uh, Ridley Scott, who had been signed on to direct it as well, um, was sidetracked by another movie you might have heard about called Alien Covenant. And, uh, and he was no longer able to direct 2049 on the timetable that this production uh, timeline had been assembled. So um, Johnson and Kosov, the other two directors, approached Denis Villeneuve. Um, and uh, so go back to 2014. Villeneuve had done uh, Asandi. He'd done Prisoners. He had done Sicario. Um, and he was he was uh, probably at that point wrapping a rival. It was probably um, at, at least it was probably in production at that point. Mm-hmm. So he had been he had put out these uh, these amazing films that were not these blockbusters, but they were very critically highly regarded. They were successful, but they weren't these sort of mass tentpole you know releases. So he wasn't like a household name. But those of us who were you know film film people, we were already freaking out about him. I, I mean, I, I've been loving his work since. Uh, prisoners basically so you know for for quite a few years at that point so so he was already on their radar as somebody that they wanted to approach and uh and what they liked about him specifically was that he seemed to be one of the few filmmakers who can make sci-fi that feels at once fantastical and utterly real and i feel like any of us who saw arrival knows exactly what what that means um and uh kosov specifically who had also um produced prisoners said that blade runner is always put in the sci-fi genre but we really think it's more of a noir movie and if you look at prisoners and sicario you know there isn't a filmmaker working today better who does better noir than denny anyway so denny villeneuve uh, initially didn't want to take the job because he didn't think that there was time and because it was one of his favorite films and he felt like he it would be a bad idea to try to approach it again but they actually reshuffled the whole production schedule and they fit him into it and eventually he said you know what Actually, I read his quote. He said, I said to myself, if there's a moment where I'm going to do a movie of this scale, it needs to be something that matters to me. So and I think we've seen plenty of that um, going into it. So anyway, moving along during the production of it, uh, it was a really um, amiable, brisk set. The shoot was going really well. Production started in Budapest in the summer of 2016 and shot for almost 100 days on a 10-stage campus-like facility. So think about the scale. I mean, 100 days Mm -hmm. is a long time for a movie shoot. And on top of that, it was spread out over 10 sound stages. That's that's gigantic, you know? So this is a a big movie. A lot of it, as we know, was built practically. It was done in frame. Um, And a lot of what we see on the trailers uh, was actually shot physically, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the sculptures and things. Um, You know, somebody that we haven't talked about too much so far in the lead up to this has been Roger Deakins, who is the cinematographer for this movie, which is like, I mean, that he is the all star cinematographer who does basically every high level picture that you walk out of it and you say, oh, my God, that was so beautiful. That was probably shot by Roger Deakins over the last 30 years. He's one of the best cinematographers working. So he talks a little bit as well. He says. Quote, so many science fiction films all look the same because the effects are done by rote. We were desperate to create our own world, end quote. So, uh, for example, if you go to Deckard's windows and you look out at the high rises around his house, they're actual illustrated backdrops. They're not green screen. They're actually, you know, paintings and not even matte paintings. They're actually, you know, 
paintings that were done on the set. So it, it's all physically there. Um, they talked to the production designer, who uh, was Dennis Gassner. And he said, uh, this is a quote, he said, we wanted the vehicles to have a more chiseled, angular graphic strength. It's a harsher world than in the first film, both environmentally and stylistically, end quote. And I think we've seen that so far with mm -hmm. the spinner design. Um, we've seen it with things like uh, like the glowing handcuffs that they use. These things that are very uh, tactile and very sharp and very unforgiving and very beautiful and interesting, which I think is important. This is not a clean science fiction film set in outer space. This is on a, a very much um, desecrated world um, using available resources at a time where there's not many available resources left. And what you come out of that with is this very brutal, very uh, verisimilitudinous environment. So looks like they're really working towards that. Uh, and they talk a little bit to Van Leeuw, who we'll get to uh, momentarily when we go through his interview. But he says uh, he talks a little bit about what his what he brings to this movie, because he said that his upbringing was was pretty straightforward. You know, he didn't have a lot of violence to draw from. But you look at his movies and they're violent. Right. They are very much confronting demons. They are very uh, visceral. Mm -hmm. So that so they were asking him a little bit about where that comes from, like where the impetus to make these dark things uh, comes from. And he says, quote, the only violence I got in my life was winter. And weather helped me figure out this movie a lot. I started from the premise that the ecosystem had collapsed, and I started to build a new Los Angeles, end quote. So Denis Villeneuve, of course, grew up in a small town in rural Quebec outside of Montreal. Um, and they would have six or seven – you know, I, I don't live very far from this. I, you know, I live in greater Boston, so I can tell you from personal experience that winter is really hard up here. Um, and as you know, too, having grown up in Chicago – um, it, and, uh, and even when you go up farther north like this, there's six or seven months of snow. You're just totally just, you know, just encrusted in your environment. You can't do anything about it. And he actually could see a nuclear power plant through his window, which I thought was a really interesting visual. So I'm just picturing this young Danny Villeneuve looking out his window at this, you know, the snow barren landscape and seeing a nuclear power plant and thinking, man, like I can see the aesthetic emerging from that already from what we've seen from the pretty limited screenshots and film that we've, that we've seen. <clears throat> uh, so anyway, so the author of the piece in closing gets to see part of the film because he goes into the uh, editing studio and uh, it's a scene where um, – well, I, I won't even say what's in the scene. I'll let people, I'll let people read that if they would like to. But, but he says that he comes away from that saying, oh my god, this is Blade Runner. He thinks no matter what else, I'm watching new characters in a new environment and I'm thinking this is Blade Runner, which is amazing. That is such an achievement, you know? And it's, it's the same thing that we say whenever we see things dropping from this movie. We go, holy shit, they're making a new Blade Runner movie. Mm -hmm. and it feels like a new Blade Runner movie. It feels right. Yeah. And that in, in itself is just, just an enormous accomplishment. I want to close briefly by saying something that we've touched on a little bit, which is that you can't really make a film like this without some social commentary or without um, – I won't even say politics, but without getting into some of the societal issues that are causing upheaval and um, conversation and uh, having society kind of conflict uh, and having a lot of um, confrontations within itself. And, uh, and they talk a little bit about this um, in the film. So in the first movie, um, obviously environmentalism was, was a part of it, right? Like there was this rainy landscape that looked like it was falling apart, but, but it wasn't like the theme of the movie wasn't that the environment was, was collapsing. And this one, that's very much the theme of the film, not only because time has progressed, but because it's something that we are confronting every single day. And I'm not going to get into climate change or anything that's perhaps for another show, but, but, but within, but I think anybody can look out and see that we are having these massive weather events happening. We are experiencing, um, the depletion of whole ecosystems, we are seeing things falling apart in many ways in, in our own natural world 
Um, and, uh, and so in this one, that is brought to the forefront. Um, Villeneuve uh, says that the, the LA of 2049 is home to an immense barrier called the Sepulveda Wall that keeps the rising oceans at bay. With, uh, and the author says, with all the various real-life environmental crises that California in particular has experienced over the past few years, these wildfires that just rage on for, you know, basically for months. Like I had a colleague who was caught in one of these things, and they, and they never got to go back home again, you know? Yeah. Their house was just, just evaporated. They were in, in, a, in these wildfires and, and just went on for, for weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, we see all this flooding going on. We see all these seawalls breaking down. We see, um, you know, what happened obviously in Katrina, these, these catastrophic events let alone what's going on in Texas as, as, we, as we say this. Um, these are things that we're seeing every single day. So the author makes a very good point. He says that in the original film, these environmental concerns and these, these sort of nihilistic future concerns felt distant. They felt like science fiction. They felt like we could see seeds of them in 1982, but it didn't feel like it was immediate. This film, and, and he says that that, could, that, could, that might have been part of why it didn't catch on immediately, is that people thought it was sort of fantasy. It was sort of... Um, removed from reality. Whereas this one, this is something that we are confronting on a daily fucking basis, right? This is something that we are seeing everywhere we look. And uh, whether it be the earthquake in Mexico last week, whether, you know, it's, it's, it's constant. And so uh, he thinks that this might actually do better than the original did in its initial theatrical release, because um, it is impossible now to separate ourselves from the themes that, that this is dealing with, that we are now living in this proto-nihilistic future world um, and because of that, it's going to be very difficult to separate ourselves. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, close with a quote that Ryan Gosling had. So Gosling says, quote, the power of science fiction and what's positive about it is that you're able to experience the worst case scenario without actually having to live it, end quote. Um, and I would say that what this movie will hinge on in terms of its lasting relevance to our society is how close it can take us to living that ourselves so we can have the ultimate mirror to look into and to start having a dialogue about what's going on in our world. So that's basically, that's a pretty comprehensive overview, but that's what this article is about and definitely check it out if you guys can. And I kind of want to set this up for this podcast. Not obviously, you know, we're going to, our show is about Blade Runner. It's going to be about Blade Runner 2049 and whatever else that might bring um, in the future. However, Blade Runner, aside from the environmental issues that it deals with, which kind of, it's really more about people. It's really more about the human experience. Um, and I think probably more pressing now, this new film might be a little bit more about environmental issues. Not so much environmental issues, but yeah, this is the state of the world. And this is the reaction of the state of the world. Um, but I don't want to, I believe that science fiction asks some really tough questions. It should ask tough questions. It should deal with, um, it should reflect in some ways things that, the way Star Trek reflects um, the kind of diversity of, of uh, their crew and the integration of their crew and how that was a big deal at that time in the 60s because uh, the civil rights uh, was going on, Martin Luther King was doing what he was doing, and then you had Star Trek kind of embodying this this mountain that Martin Luther King was talking about. Uh, Blade Runner deals with people who have been, I would say, bioengineered people, androids or whatever they are, um, have been have been decreed as not being fit to, to be in certain areas during Blade Runner, not even fit to be on the earth. They were forbidden. And then, you know, we'll get into it. There was a whole nexus prohibition. Um, those are very 
pressing things. And we're seeing that in our lifetime too. We're seeing the idea that certain people don't belong somewhere. Certain people shouldn't, um, just based on who they are. Certain people shouldn't go. We shouldn't accept certain people in certain places based on who they are, based on where they're from, based on what we think they are. Um, and those are all themes that Blade Runner pivots around. Um, and I, I just want to say unequivocally that these are topics within the world of Blade Runner that we're going to discuss and we're not going to back away from them. Um, and I think that I've always said this great science fiction asks tough questions, asks amazing questions. It doesn't always answer them, but it asks them. And this podcast is really going to reflect that. Um, because what's going to be, ha what, what we're seeing in art is a reflection of society. So I'll leave it at that. In this movie, the lighting, the camera, it's like a character in itself. This Blade Runner is a new genius at work. It's that same kind of color palette, but so made by another painter. Next on the agenda is, so Denis Villeneuve gave uh, probably about, well, who knows how long the interview was, but it was about 11 minutes of recorded interview to uh, a group of people in Moscow. And this was probably in the last two or three days. It was just uploaded yesterday or the day before yesterday. And he made very th three very specific points, um, which we want to discuss. The thing is that uh, the movie you're going to see is the director's cut. There will be no uh, further, uh, maybe there will be a studio version, <laughs> maybe a producer version, but not a director's version. That's the that's my director's cut. So uh, um, I, I, I don't think there will be a, a alternate versions. Months ago, they asked him in interviews, will you, do you get final cut? And that's a big thing for directors. It really, most, well, the large directors like Ridley Scott, Steven Spielberg, um, probably Michael Bay and a lot of other people, they get final cut Be just because that's just who they are. They have the pedigree, they have the, the success behind them. And, uh, and, and also because, because people are seeing the movie because their name is on it. You oh, know? Totally. I mean, like, like if, if you can prove to a studio that you have a dollar sign attached to your name, then yeah, they're, they're going to give you much more power. Totally. But Denny Villeneuve does not have that yet. Not yet. So, so Arrival this was successful. huge. It was successful, but it was, but but the, the typical film goer, it didn't come away from it going, oh, that was a that was a, this you know amazing Denny Villeneuve film. They mm -hmm. said it was a great sci-fi movie, right? Mm -hmm. So in this, we're probably about to witness the thir the turning point of that. I would hope, but but it, it speaks a lot about his um, character that they still gave him final cut rights to this thing. Yeah, on the initial theatrical release of a blockbuster movie. Yeah, and so yeah, so he he got it. He said, "This is my director's cut." He said, um, uh, "And you know." He goes on to say, you know, there won't, there will be no other cuts of this film. This is what it is. And again, like to echo your comments, I think that was pretty profound. It's a pretty profound thing for the studio to trust him that much. Um, but I've seen him in interviews. You've seen him in interviews. He's a very humble man. He is, mm -hmm. there is nothing pretentious about him. He answers from the heart. He answers truthfully and honestly. Um, and Maybe he doesn't have a lot of financial success. I think his films have been successful, but they're not yeah. these big, huge blockbuster, right. hundreds of millions of dollars. I think probably Arrival is the largest film he's done. Um, but they speak for themselves. They and do. They speak for themselves so much that he got hired to make a film from the Herbert novels, novels Dune. Um, yeah. 
So that's an- another gigantic franchise possibility, right? Mm-hmm. Like another potential huge blockbuster mm-hmm. with a lot riding on it, mm-hmm. right? And this is a remake, essentially. Right. It's not like Blade Runner where he's coming in and he's saying, okay, we're going to make a sequel. And I'm kind of, I don't know how I feel about that right now. He's like, no, I'm going to remake this film and I'm going to yeah. give it the vision that I believe. Um, right. So I thought that was worth mentioning. It was worth discussing or even throwing it out there that um, there's a lot of respect for him. There's a lot of respect is, for... Good. Well, you know, you know what's cool is that in the interview, also they talked to Harrison Ford, um, and and he says like, and he's like, uh, don't make it look like I'm having too much fun, because like you know I don't want people to think I'm like wasting time having a good time, because the 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 author says like, it's funny Harrison Ford is like laughing a lot, he's like very jovial, uh, he's just like seems to be really enjoying himself. Same thing with Ryan Gosling too. He said that like it was just this like pleasure to work with Denny. And they talk about how when he's wrapping a scene, they they wait for him to say I think it's great or something or or or, or very pleased or something. But he has this like thing that he says when he wraps a shot and he's like happy with it. And he goes like Oh, the great, 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 great. And they're like, Hey, if we got four greats, then we know that like that was a good <laughs> shot, you know. And yeah. it just seems like there's just this. I mean, I mean, you have there's more than one way to lead, right? There's more than one way to create something. But um, and everybody has their own strengths and their own leadership styles. But it seems like Denny's is really about bringing people together and creating a shared vision. And like for this kind of a movie, I mean, that is exactly what you need. You need somebody who has the sensibility sensibilities of an auteur, but who has the um, emotional makeup of like an extroverted nice person who is willing to compromise um, when compromise will suit the vision for the project. You know, absolutely. And I think it's really important to note that I don't care if you make the best piece of art, film, whatever out there. If you're an asshole, it, to me, it renders it null and void. Like, uh, there's a director who did three Kings, David O. Russell, or is it mm-hmm. O. Russell? Yeah. Um, David Russell. Yeah. You know, there's pages and pages and articles written about him and how, t- uh, insufferable he is and right. how, uh, abusive he was on set or right. verbally abusive. And he got into blows with, uh, George, George Clooney. Clooney. <laughs> yeah. George yeah. Um, and to me that sullied my taste for him. Like I don't, if you're not treating people well, if you're not working from humility, I don't care how good your art is. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't excuse your behavior. And, yeah. um, I, I, you know, I've seen that a lot, not a lot lately. I've seen that kind of rear its head at certain times where you have these directors who are known for amazing things and you see some of their quotes and you're like, man, that's kind of a jerky thing to say, or how yeah. dare you? But I love, but back to Villeneuve, I love his approach. I love his approach that, you know, here we are together doing this. We're together making this movie. It's not the Denny Villeneuve show. You know, it's mm-hmm. the Harrison Ford show. It's the Jared Leto show. It's the crew. It's the cast. It's the, the Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins. The, yeah. Right. And uh, I, I just think, Going forward, that speaks to me. Kindness speaks to me. Genuine kindness and compassion for your fellow man as you endeavor to create art. I think, I mean, we, doing what we do here on Shoulder of Orion, Perfect Organism, the, you know, the the website, all the things that we do, it's a collaborative effort. It's not me. It's not you. It's everyone. So I just think that's really important. And um, that, that, um, what's the term I'm looking for? That gives me even more hope. For 2049. Oh, me too, man. Me too. Me too. Um, totally. Because you know what it shows? It shows that he can listen. 
you know, mm-hmm. which, which, which seems like such a simple thing, but, but it's tough. Like to, to be a director who does well within the Hollywood studio system, you have to have an ego. You have to really believe in your own innate mm-hmm. faculties, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have that. But, um, but it's the, the people who are able to keep that ego in check long enough to listen in an honest way to what others might be contributing or to what others might be saying or for feedback. So that, the, so that like the others can hold up a mirror and you can be like, is this really the way that I want to be acting right now? Those are the people who have long success in Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. And the people that nobody wants to work with again, they might put out a brilliant feature every 12 years and then they just disappear again. You're like, well, you know, I guess they're off doing something uh, independent or something that we're not going to know about because nobody in Hollywood wants to work with them again. But, it, but if you can listen like that, if you can iterate and if you can build something that is greater than the sum of its parts, but that has a lot of parts in it, then you can really have a great career. And hopefully, hopefully that's what we're going to see. Denny's still a young guy. You know, he's still got hopefully decades of great stuff in him. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm so excited for this, for this guy's career. I Me really too. Am. Me too. The next point that I want to discuss in the interview that he uh, had was, or is, Zimmer, Hans Zimmer. Well, he didn't talk about it much. The score that was uh, written by uh, uh, Ben Wallfish and Hans Zimmer is one of the best score I've heard. And I'm very proud of the score of the film. It's a score that is inspired by the work of Vangelis. We used the same uh, instruments that uh, Vangelis uh, used for the first movie. I haven't heard the score. I've heard a piece of it. What I've heard, I've loved. Um, it's, it's grown on me day after day. Um, but I don't even know what the full thing is. I think they're keeping that. There's not even a release date for the soundtrack. You can't see right. it. And I think that they don't want to give it away. They just don't, they want it to be a marriage with the music or with the movie. And they don't want to have people painting ideas of what this movie, because oftentimes with these movies, they release a soundtrack two weeks before. Mm -hmm. And they say, like uh, Covenant did that. Well, Covenant did that, right. Yeah. Yeah. So many movies do that, but they're not doing it. I mean, it's, you can't even with the art book, the art and soul of of, uh, Blade Runner 2049, you can barely even find an American placeholder for that book um, because they don't want to give anything away. Right. And, so I'm I'm really excited to to see what Zimmer brings to the score. It's, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's funny, and and I, I agree with what Bill Robbie says, and what, with with what you've said that this shows such a respect for the original material without feeling like it is necessarily a, a recreation of it. Like because what we've heard doesn't sound like Vangelis's music particularly, but using the same instruments speaks volumes. Now it, it's interesting to remember that that Vangelis was recording this primarily on synthesizers, right? Um, and synthesizers in the early 80s are extremely uh, easy to uh, to recreate digitally. Like like you can download any number of patches. I have hundreds of them on my, on my own uh, system, you know, on my own hard drive, where you can emulate the sound of pretty much any synthesizer from, you know, the 60s onward. Um, but, uh, but there is something about the actual instrument that is more important than that. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that it's it, it would it have been very easy to, to make a facsimile of it. But you would have lost something ineffable about the original sound of that instrument, whether that be some sort of, you know, impossible to to quantify soul in that instrument, just having lived through something, or whether that be something unique about the way that it was wired or the warmth of its, um, you know, circuitry. There, there are things about the actual physical instrument that um, are special and that might not be uh, – people might not pick up on that. They probably won't when they're listening to it. But – it informs the creative process, and uh, and there's something really important about that. That the whole time he was doing the score, he was 
in communication with the soul of Vangelis's music through using the same instruments. And when you do that, like when you when when a modular synthesizer like that is hooked up in a certain way to a certain keyboard in a certain spatial configuration, because these are big instruments. These aren't these little Casios, you know, these are big instruments. Um, when when you're forced to deal with with spatial realities like that, you make creative decisions that are somehow um, kindred spirits to the original decisions that were made, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if, if two people are walking down a street and they – 30 years apart and there's a building in that street that um, is like heavier on one side than the other side and it's right before there's a fork in the road – it's more likely that those two people will probably take that same side of the fork based on which way the, the building is leaning. You know what I mean? So in this case, it's like they might be making totally different um, art from it, but because it's set up in a certain way and there's certain um, there's certain things that that uh, come out of that instrument, you know, that are impossible to quantify. Like I said, they're going to end up doing something similar early on in the creative process and coming out with very different products, but with something that shares a soul. Do you like our owl? artificial of course it is must be expensive very i'm rachel deckard it seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public replicants are like any other machine they're either a benefit or a hazard if they're a benefit it's not my problem May I ask you a personal question? Sure. And I want to reiterate something we've touched on before in a couple episodes past, or maybe the last one, just in terms of how important the music is will be for 2049. Um, I can't re- I can't state enough that the music is important. Um, and I, I don't approach 2049 like, oh, I hope it's better than the original um, or this comparison. I don't, I, it just has to work for what it is. The music for, has to work for what it's, you know, for the setup of the world, it's got to work as a, as a, as its own thing. That's what's going to make 2049 successful. Not if it's better than the original or as good as, or whatever, this comparison business is just going to set you up to fail because you're going to be playing out scenes in your mind as you're watching new scenes and thinking, well, these don't match up to those scenes. Right. Um, right. And I, I just think that, that just does a disservice to the film or will do. Some people go, will go into this movie expecting it to fail. And, mm-hmm. they, and it will because of their and wanting expect- it to be because, you know, for better or for worse, they, they don't want a remake. They don't want a new sequel made. They, they, they just want it to live on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, and we see this with every time that that uh, Hollywood film comes out that is hearkening back to some original film that people hold dear. Like we said on our last episode with Stephen King's It, right? Like people are somehow trying to say that the TV miniseries was better than the new film, which obviously it's not by any by any objective standard. It's not. But but people except perhaps for Tim Curry, but whatever, that's something people can argue about. But like but but as a film, the new one is great. And like but people refuse to see it um, in that light because they're so beholden to the original movie. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. there will be people like that who will crap all over this thing on social media when Blade Runner 2049 comes out. And that's the danger. They're going to hate it. And there's, that's the danger of nostalgia, too, where we can yeah. become so nostalgic over these things. And, hey, I grew up in the 80s. I think you were born in the 80s. Um, yep. I understand the connection. I mean, I live and breathe, you know, Alien and Aliens. Alien was 79 and The Dark Crystal and The NeverEnding Story and Flight of the Navigator and all these movies that speak to me and continue to as an adult and inform me. I just, just like you said, I think it, I can't be beholden to these things because nothing is going to match up to what I have the idea in my head or in my heart. So right. I have to kind of let that sit there 
but make room for other things. Right. Um, and like you said, people are expecting it to fail, or some right. some people are. So some people are, and 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 it's like you can never be a kid again. You know, like as hard as it is to admit that to yourself, you you are never going to be a four year old watching Flight of the Navigator again for the first time and thinking about being on a spaceship hurtling through space with a buddy who's an alien. Like it's just not you're not going to get that again. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're never going to get back there, yeah. and that's okay. We can't. So take it as a new movie, watch it as an adult, and enjoy it for what it is, or don't enjoy it for what it is, but take it for what it is. But right? we can, and we can. I think the beauty of a movie like it was I. I watched it again and went and saw it again with my nephew uh, two days ago. And the second time around, it played out as good or better than the first. And yeah. I realized to myself, you know, this movie is legit reminding me of a Spielberg film from the late 70s or 80s. It had the yeah. grit. It had the harshness of it. But the magic and the wonder of of Stand By Me or, you know, or Close Encounters and these kids in the 1980s experiencing these things. And I thought, you know what? This is really a legit film, and I haven't felt yeah. this way about a film in terms of my connection to nostalgia of the 80s since, like, Stranger Things, which also really right. reconnects me. It's really its own voice, even though it's really set in some of the ideas presented in with Spielberg or or John Carpenter or a lot of or, – or Scott has a lot of those ideas playing, but it's still its own animal. Um But I made space for it. I made space for mm -hmm. the wonder, and as I was watching it – I was struck by what I was seeing. I, it was new for me. Even though I have my foundation, I was able to let it breathe. Um, and yeah, it's not to say, right. hey, some films that will try and they'll fail. And um, maybe for some people, it failed. You know, some for, probably some people, 2049 is going to fail. Um, and it might even fail for me. I haven't seen it yet. We'll see. Right. Um, right. But making space for it, giving something room to live and breathe on its own and yeah. not just die of comparison because everything will. Right, exactly, exactly. Lastly, I thought we could just discuss this one thing. It's just really, really small. I sent it to you a little bit ago, um, and it was a clip. Or, Rotten Tomatoes, right? Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. I don't have it in front of me right now. I don't have my phone. I, I got it, I got it. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and read it? Yeah. All right, so this is by uh, a poster named Ben Organa, which uh, is probably a uh, <laughs> nom de plume. Um, and, uh, and again, and again, you know, we can't source this or verify this at all, but, um, but this guy posted on Rotten Tomatoes under a thread that says, who else has robust anticipation for Blade Runner 2049? And he said, early word on Buzzville is that the film is at least as good as the final cut of the original. I knew my faith in Villeneuve wasn't misplaced. Looks like he didn't let old man Ridley influence him negatively. Primed and ready for Blade Runner 2049. Skeptics can boil in an oven. So I think we can agree that no matter what, that was a very evocative post. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very, very cool. But also, uh, it seems to be confirming what we what we know. I mean, I, I don't think there have been test audiences for this. There have not been advanced screenings for critics, as far as I know. Right? There have not been any screenings for critics yet. Not, or if there have been, everyone's on an NDA. Right. That, that actually that could totally be a non-disclosure situation too. You're right. There might be an embargo on reviews for it. Yeah. Um, but regardless, people have seen this cut of the film. And it's nice to know that potentially they're very happy with it. Agreed, agreed. Um, and I, you know, I love reading those kinds types of quotes. Of course, um, you know, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt or whatever. Um, just to kind of people know they're posting on uh, an online site or social media site, so they're going to want to kind of bring attention to themselves a little bit. But right. uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the hope, the hope, that's the hope that this film is. Uh, not so much as good as the original, but it lives up to the integrity of the original. That's really that's really what we're after. It's 
the integrity of Blade Runner? And does it continue that theme? And do we leave that film um, feeling euphoric and feeling like, hey, that's my story up there? Because really, that's what great art does. You look at a piece of art, a film, a read a book, whatever, and you close that book or you that film ends and you feel like your story was just told on that screen. And I was thinking about Arrival and... Um, there's this sense about Arrival that I can't really describe, this sense of urgency, the sense that they've told our story that about communication, about how important communication is, about how important listening is, and listening to people who you perceive are your enemies or who you think are your enemies but aren't. But because there's a language barrier there, um, and that can be people who speak the same language, you know? Um, whether that's someone who disagrees with your political ideology, but you really give them space and time to articulate what they're saying, and then you realize, hey, we kind of want the same thing if we're coming at it from different angles. How can we find a, uh, how can we find a place to grow from there? And uh, to me, that was kind of the the message of Arrival. Uh, aside from love and loss, and um, is love worth it, even if you know you're going to lose someone? Um, which is we all know we're all going to die, we're all going to lose people. Anyways, I don't want to wax too poetic with that. Um, but uh, yeah, well, you're, you're you're right. It has to feel personally relevant. You know, totally. it, it, it really does. And Blade Runner for both you and I completely does. So hopefully this will further <laughs> um, uh, support that. I, I really hope so. Uh, I do, too. And I, I, I have great faith. Me, too. Me, too, man. And I'd say that and that's it's grow and it's growing by the day. It really is. It is. Every, and... every new little reveal that we get. I mean, I, I, it's just it just sounds like it's going to be awesome. It does. And I'll leave I'll leave off with this thing. And I think I even. Maybe I, I texted you this uh, a couple of days ago, but there's this thing, there's a sense about Blade Runner 2049 that I feel like it's a story that has to be told because of what's going on in our world, politically, mm -hmm. environmentally, right. um, socially, all of these things kind of bubbling over and spilling over. Everything is socially, uh, politically, it's it's this kind of cacophony of, of stuff. And I feel like, I don't know why, maybe it's just me being overly naive but i feel like blade runner is a story that's going to really reflect that and it's going to reflect where we are today and people yeah. need to see it um and maybe i think good art will change people and i'm not saying it's going to change the world or whatever i could be completely wrong and i'm overly optimistic but I, i'm a believer i'm a believer Me too, in, man. In good art. If, if 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 anything will break through the the rigidity of these uh this this like lack of listening to each other and this this like inability to communicate and this, um, these entrenched positions that we have, it's going to be art. It's going to be looking to art to show us who we are and show us what we're, what both sides of any given argument are doing wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And ho hopefully this is a really wonderful opportunity for that to happen. I completely agree. Totally. All right. That's a wrap.